You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Ovid.tv is the independent streaming home for people who want to watch foreign films, thought-provoking documentaries, and art house gems that are impossible to find anywhere else. For just $6.99 a month, you'll have access to a cornucopia of films to watch anytime and on any device. Vanity Fair calls Ovid.tv a fantastic streamer for people with a taste for foreign, political, and otherwise beyond the American mainstream films. Discover art house titles, documentaries, works of global cinema all in one place. Start streaming at www.ovid.tv. Highlights include a collection of French thrillers like Tell No One, based on Harlan Coben's international best-selling novel, and the British comedy La Weekend, about a couple attempting to rekindle their romance in Paris. From now until October 21st, 2020, save 50% off your first three months of Ovid.tv. Just head on over to www.ovid.tv and sign up with the coupon code PROJECTION at checkout. Welcome to Checktember 2020. I'm your host, Mike White, and I am doing a little something different. The first two episodes of September 2020 are not just going to be simple episodes. We are actually doing these as commentaries. Now, you can do this as lining up this episode with a movie, and I'll provide a link over in the show notes at www.projection-booth.com, or you can just listen to it as is. might not make a whole lot of sense that way. I've also taken the time to line up the commentary with the movie. You can go over to the same website and look at things that way and be able to enjoy the movie as well as listen to the commentary. So you can do it that way, or you can just continue to let this play. And if that's the case, hey, knock yourself out. So if you want to line up the movie with the commentary we're going to start right at the moment when the Berendorf Studios title card comes up. It's about, well, depending on which version you watch, because there are quite a few. Uh, there's one that's about 14 seconds in. There's another one that's 25 seconds in. But anyway, as soon as that Berendorf Studios title card comes up, that's when you should start the commentary. You can continue listening. You can pause this. Find the movie. Again, I'll put a link over at www.projection-booth.com or you can watch it at that same URL, whatever you would like. So let's go ahead and we are going to start this commentary in five, four, three, two. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Dashew. Hello there. And with me once again is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. And today we are talking about All My Compatriots, otherwise known as All My Good Countrymen. This film came out in 1969. Didn't really have too much of a life in Czechoslovakia. I believe it was banned pretty much as soon as it came down and uh, had more of a life overseas, though not much of one. So I was curious, Chris, have you seen many films by Wojtek Janci or even when it comes to Czechoslovakian cinema before? 
I have not. However, I will preface that by saying I have seen Ukrainian filmmaking. Uh, my great, my father's father, my grandfather was a Ukrainian immigrant who came to the States in the mid 60s with his family. And he had a Ukrainian name and he grew up in Ukraine. But they were displaced during World War II, unfortunately. So when I was growing up, I would go to their house and spend a lot of time with them. And I would watch a fair amount of Ukrainian cinema. I didn't appreciate it at the time, obviously, for a number of reasons. Namely, when you're a kid, you just don't really care. But I had never seen Czechoslovakian cinema, but it kind of made me remember certain things I saw when I was a kid. So it's not like I was completely thrown into the deep end with this film. How about you, Spencer? Big fan? I guess I've uh, so far seen some of the Czech New Wave greatest hits, but uh, beyond that, I'm I'm not as knowledgeable as I would like to be. And I say I'm not as knowledgeable as I would like to be because what I've seen so far, I just love. So this is exciting. Yeah, this is relatively new for me. I've heard of this film for years and I'm just glad that we're able to sit down and talk about this. I was really just super happy to see just the scope of this film. And for whatever reason, I had seen so many stills from this film in books that I never pictured it as being a color film. And it is so colorful, especially this opening scene that takes us into this very idyllic kind of spring for the ages, uh, May 1945. So we're just after the war, we have this whole opening scene of this uh, church choir and talking about (laughs) going from man's creation to the Red Army storming in and liberating everyone, kind of setting the tone as far as what's going to happen in this movie, as far as the turn more towards this red tide. And we've got Vladismil Brodsky as Osenas, uh, our organ player here. And he is probably the most dynamic of the characters. Um, and we'll talk about that as we go along. If there's a villain to the piece, I would possibly say that he is the villain, though he's not like a mustache twirler. there comes a point in this film where his character takes a step back and it's it's nice that the other characters come in and take his spot because like you said he is pretty much if you walk away from this film with any sort of feeling towards the communist party they're more or less shaped by his character at kind of the forefront of everything that happens through the first half of the movie so I said it was 1969, but actually the copyright in the credits is 1968. And this was one of many films that did not survive the Soviet invasion of 1968. The whole idea of, you know, we've been making films under communist rule. We had the Prague Spring in early part of 68, and then the Iron Curtain comes slamming down again. So a lot of films that were being already made or 
possibly just about to be made, uh, they would not necessarily see the light of day. So this film was shown at Khan. I believe Yasni won uh, Best Director and got a a claim from that, but did not continue to make films in Czechoslovakia for a long time until, uh, I think, after the Velvet Revolution. Well, he went into exile after the film was released because he'd rather go into exile than essentially recant the film, which when the film has as strong of a message towards communism as this film does, I don't blame him for standing by his beliefs. I don't know if Yasni has a thing for redheaded children, but I noticed in this and in the long after sequel, Return to Paradise Lost, that he also has a really robust redhead in that. This whole thing of these kids finding these guns, I kept expecting them to just shoot one another. (laughs) Well, that's because you're an American. I like the idea in this film that there's these kind of like remnants of the war scattered throughout the otherwise idyllic and beautiful landscape because it really does show that like just underneath the surface while their lives are getting back to normal, there is still that intrusion of the war and like this post-war sentiment that everything is now good and, and bright and green again. But, I mean, just out of view, hiding in the bushes or in piles, are piles of helmets and guns and and all kinds of just, you know, leftovers from an invasion and a, and a war that had just ended. It's, it's, pre- it's a pretty interesting contrast. I don't know if, if you guys felt this way, but I, uh, I really love this opening sequence for the way that it, it kind of functions as an allegory for the rest of the film. The children come in and they seize these weapons. It seems to me like part of the view of communism throughout, that it's it's posing the sort of uh, communist seizing property throughout the rest of the film is very much like these children who are seizing these weapons and then don't really know what to do with them. This comparison um, really, really works to set up, uh, you know, how how the the logic of the rest of the movie is going to go. Well, they get the weapons and they just start pointing them at adults. The first guy they shoot at, they they shoot at the thief uh, and they knock off his hat. And again, uh, this is not like a hugely symbolic film, but I do feel like this opening sequence, especially with, uh, you know, the costuming here, the colors that they're wearing and the way that all this plays out in a in a somewhat more abstract vein, uh, you know, really does um, kind of provide a lesson for how to watch the plot of the rest of the film. And I also like that in these first couple minutes of the film, they show every character on their own, and then they all slowly come together. So you, they get a they get a moment to kind of breathe as characters, but then you do get to see that this is a clearly a group of friends that have been friends for a long time, and they have a very close-knit relationship with one another. Yeah, really beautiful, efficient introduction of all the major characters and what's essentially a... a a really uh, radically ensemble-based film. You know, there uh, there are not there, there's there's not a single protagonist here. 
Well, and as the film continues to go on, that becomes more and more apparent, unfortunately, much to the detriment of some of the the more kind of, uh, not lighthearted, but uh, more simplistic characters for sure. I feel so bad for this actor because he was in both this, which would get banned, and then he was in uh, The Ear in 1970, I think that came out, and that would also get banned as well. So he uh, quite a few of his movies uh, during this period of time were kind of written out of the history books. I will say, though, because, you know, once as the film goes on, it becomes more clear that Frantichek is the main character, ostensibly, of the film, especially the later half. As 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 much as like you were mentioning, Spencer, there is a there there the allegory is rather kind of low to the ground. It's not an elevated allegory. I do appreciate that the character that we end up following for the later half of the film is a farmer who were the traditionally the ones that were really beaten down by the communist government, and the ones that were more ta- more taken advantage of than a lot of folks were the were the farmers. Uh, absolutely. Well, and the trajectory of it as an ensemble film winnows, which gives you know he he ends up as a main as as a as a main character, if not the main character, almost by default because of what happens to the other uh, characters that we're presented with. I like that Yasni is playing with time with so much of this. I mean, we had the one title card that came up, but then even when it came to that. Um, montage that we had with uh, Yorka or Joe the Lip, as it uh, can also be translated, that um, we see his whole progression from stealing a bicycle to obviously stealing a motorcycle with boots, stealing the car, and all the while the kids are running through the forest. And it's like, this did not happen in an afternoon, unless Joe is a really good thief. It feels like it goes over a period of weeks. But yet those kids are still running around and just being a danger to themselves and everybody else. Yeah, again, it's part of the kind of beautiful abstract quality of this, uh, this opening sequence as we now bring everybody together. I love this whole idea of them finding this landmine, this remnant of the what could be the distant past, but definitely wasn't. And yeah, you were talking about how our characters aren't together until that moment, but then we get really all of these introductions here with this beautiful shot of them and all of their names and who they are. It's got some real powerhouses of Czech acting in here. I absolutely love so many of these actors. Um, Joe the Lip, especially Vladimir Mesnik, Menzik. I absolutely love every time he shows up and stuff. And he and uh, Yasni had worked together at least one time before. I don't remember if he was in Desire, but for sure he was in the Cassandra Cat, which was really hailed as uh, Yasni's masterpiece um, and got him a lot of acclaim. I mean, Desire was definitely lauded as well, but when Cassandra Cat was seen, a lot of people just fell in love with that film for good reason. Including Fred Astaire. Yes, and this was such a departure from that. It You would not know that the same man had directed these three films. And I do appreciate, this is something that, Mike, when you and I have spoken in the past about foreign films, sometimes it's hard to follow. 
And that's no fault of the foreign film. I'm not blaming foreign cinema at all. But sometimes it's hard to follow. It's nice that this film lays out all the characters right from the get-go. And you know their names, and you know their professions, and you know where they are and who they are, like, within the first ten minutes of the film. I really appreciate that because, like you said, Spencer, it is an ensemble cast. And if we were having to kind of grasp at straws as to who is this or who is this character, that would have been to the film's detriment, but there's none of that with this. You know exactly who they are, and it's pretty well-defined within the first 15 minutes of the film. Yeah, it's very direct and, and accessible. You know, does does some some good, simple tricks uh, with, uh, with, with costuming, uh, you know, for instance, um, the, the, the way that, uh, the way that the clothes that people wear, um, throughout this piece and, and Mike, you were mentioning, uh, this costumer, uh, for, for this film is kind of the, the Edith head of, uh, of Czechoslovakian cinema. Um, she does a really amazing job. I'm forgetting her name, but she does a really amazing job of, uh, Esther Krumbakova. Uh, Esther Krumbakova uh, does a, a, a really wonderful job of allowing the, the, the each of these characters to change costumes as necessary throughout, but that they there's a consistency to the look, uh, to the shape, to the color for each character that uh, that makes uh, this kind of complicated uh, ensemble plot much simpler to follow, much more direct. Well, they all have very different looks to them. I mean, especially uh, the character that we're just introduced to here, Zazanek, who has this full beard and almost this kind of devilish look to him. And I like that we just get this real brief introduction as far as his wife being taken away by the Germans because she looks Jewish. And that will come back really hardcore later on. But for now, he is just this kind of loves singing, loves dancing, he loves playing music more than he loves the fields as they introduce him. And, God, it's just this whole opening scene, this whole May 1945 bit, you could not find more joy in a single sequence, I think. Just everyone is so happy and so carefree, um, even if they are, you know, working hard and all this, but they're definitely playing hard as well. And I just love to see all these friends together. And that just makes the rest of the movie even more tragic. Like anything else, it, it's the calm before the storm. But the thing is, is as viewers, you know, the storm is coming, but the characters don't. And like you said, Mike, that makes it even more tragic is that they're just completely unaware of, about, of, 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 of the things that are coming that are just waiting at the door, essentially. I love the kind of Greek chorus of uh, villagers that are not part of this ensemble, that are not part of the, the main seven characters. Especially, we just saw the old woman who we are going to see. To yes. Yeah. We see her so much, and she's just this kind of silent judge through the entire rest of the film. I love her. She has this uh, kind of resting skeptical face throughout the entire movie. But some of the folks in this film, outside of the main actors, were just people who lived in this town, correct? I believe so. Actors. Okay, because that's what I thought. 
I would not be surprised. That was kind of a thing to do. I mean, casting non-actors in Czech films. I mean, Milos Forman kind of made his whole career out of that. Taking even, um, you know, my buddy uh, Vladimir Menzik and putting him in Loves of a Blonde with, I believe, two other... One might have been an actor, but one for sure was an amateur and or just a regular old person and putting those guys together and putting an actor in the middle of them to kind of even them out. It sells the film even more. It makes the film feel lived in, in a way that just casting actors wouldn't. I mean, the character of Frontichek is based off of a real person that... Yasny knew and knew his family and was still close with his family up until his death. And, uh, you know, they obviously cast someone to play that role, but it still comes through as like these are very well-defined, almost lived-in roles that the actors embody with so much ease that it it's almost surprising that they are actors. It just feels so natural. I think the actor that played Frontichek actually lived with that farmer for a while, right? That's, that's right, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. That's wild. I want to mention the photography in this scene really quickly because it's um, actually the both the handheld and the way that it's spinning with the characters is, um, you know, uh, quite uh, unlike the most of the photography throughout the rest of the film, which would be more, more like what we're watching now, this um, kind of tableau kind of picture that we get is is much more common as a strategy throughout the film that sequence of the dancing um you know one the handheld throughout uh that that gets us in into the sense of place but that that works up into the this ecstatic dance by the end it's just such a wonderful example of breaking with your own conventions in order to tell the story in a in, in an effective way it's a, a really really beautiful um piece of photography there and I think more meaningful because we don't have a lot of handheld and we don't have a lot of uh, kind of florid movement in this film. I feel kind of bad because I think I said seven main characters but I think I was leaving out the Merry Widow Drahomira Hafmanova character who she is just such a delight in this film. Every time she's on screen, I'm just captivated by her. She is just so wonderful to watch and such a good actress. And she was there right next to Osenas uh, at the beginning. She was the singer right to his left, I suppose, to our right. Um, and so she's been in this movie from the beginning. And that she has her little backstory as far as her husband dying and now falling in love with... Um, Burton, I believe, is the man's uh, the character's name. Pavel Pavlovsky. He's going to have an interesting story as he goes along here. So you kind of have again this hope for renewal and new life coming out of this, having these two characters get together. God, yeah, this is absolutely gorgeous photography. The seasons play such an interesting role in the film. I mean, like y'all mentioned, there is the time jumping of, you know, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's three years. At the end of the film, it's just epilogue. So it's interesting that they're using the time jumps and the seasons to kind of mirror what's going on in 
the film and with the characters themselves. It's just, I mean, it's just a brilliant way to tell the story and reinforce their surroundings are kind of being affected by what's happening with them as well. feels more like a book than a movie a lot of times. I suppose it might be the passage of time, the title cards, the richness of the story. It just feels like there's so much more going on to this film than what we're necessarily just shown. And I, I suppose that makes it seem like it's lacking, but I'm just saying it feels like there's a real richness here. Like if you were to turn the camera just a little bit to the left or right, you would catch other people's stories. You know, you would maybe get that woman with the, I love how you said, resting skeptical face and be able to see what her story is or the people around her. It just feels like there's a whole life to this village. Yeah, it really does have a novelistic quality to it. And, and that novelistic quality in, in the way that it handles the, the ensemble and sense of human place as well as sense of landscape. I mean, obviously, it's like beautifully photographed for landscape, but we have this very, you know, human, humane sense of, of the place where, uh, where all the action is going on. I would almost go as far as to say less of a novel, but more of like an epic poem. There's like a lyrical quality to it, and I've and I read that over and over again. Like there's a lyrical quality to the to Yasni's films, and I would agree 100. percent And I I feel like it's more of an epic poem because you know it is. I mean, there's a lot of dialogue in this film, but there's not as much as there could be. It's told through the actions of the characters, less less through the dialogue, and I appreciate that because it really lets the imagery and the actions flow more than just, you know, an over-encumbrance of dialogue that's just beating you over the head with allegory. So we've pretty much just ended the first act of the film, gone into 1948, and that wonderful snow-covered scene and the great editing of uh, the fields, and then having that disembodied voice start spouting out all of these different orders so we know that things are changing already and they'll just continue to change and for the worse as we go through here all of these restrictions on honey you're only allowed one gram of honey it's like it kind of reminds me of the chocolate ration from 1984 well and you're also now it's essentially a secondary version of the introduction of the characters because now we're learning who was converted by the Communist Party and who is still, you know, doing what they were doing three years earlier. And it's it's really interesting to kind of to reintroduce these characters all of a sudden in a completely different role. I also find it very interesting, too, that we have a narrator who I never think that we know who the narrator is. It's not like this is one particular character's story, that this is really much more of a voice of God type narrator who is, just knows the ins and outs and can take us through these characters' lives, which is really kind of a nice way to go. It's clear he knows the characters, but... I don't, but like you said, Mike, I'm not sure that he is an actual character himself. It could be somebody, and I just don't recognize the voice having this in 
check is something that, you know, kind of deters me from knowing exactly who might be speaking it, but it just feels like it's someone who is not part of this main group of guys. Well, that's, for me, how this feels like a, a epic poem, is because it feels like someone is recounting this to us, as in, in, or a novel either way, but it's like someone is recounting the story to us. We're, we're only watching it play out because it's a film, but they're recounting the story to us and how it unfolds. Yeah, we have a very distinct uh, sort of third-person narrator one way or the other, even if it is one of these characters within the way, the way that the narration functions throughout... Um, it kind of seems to know a little bit more about each of these characters than than any one person within the uh, the narrative would probably know. I do find it interesting how the addition of a hat to Oceanus's character makes him look menacing. He looks menacing now with with a hat on, but without a hat, he just looked like the everyday organ player, and now he looks quite menacing as a character. I looked and could not find any explanation for this red, black, and purple scarf thing that we keep doing, that we keep zooming in or allowing these scarves to overtake the screen. And it's an interesting way that they are repeating that. And you're right, Chris, as far as the introduction now of Osanis and that he has this red scarf and the hat and he's already had this cigarette holder and now he looks like he's, you know, Mr. Big Stuff with these two tufts next to him with their black and purple scarves. And yeah, he's, like I said, he's not an evil man, but he's definitely seems like he's bought into the program. Yeah. You know, we, we had talked about this before, but for American moviegoers, the thing that I thought of as soon as I saw his character with that hat on was tote from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Absolutely. But, like, it's not an unfair comparison. I mean, obviously that character is much more villainous, but the, the, the comparisons are right there if you just glance at the character just completely just want, you know, one quick glance at him. Yeah, the hat and glasses together, you know, really, really do it. Which is funny because that actor... I had never seen him in a role where he was anything but, I suppose he was a little bit evil in Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea, but for the most part, he's kind of the henpecked husband, the what do you, what do you want, what are you going to do with me, kind of, you know, just this mensch that you would see in so many movies, and in this, that is played played off of, that he's this kind of just regular little, you know, unassuming guy, but the Communist Party allows him to get into this position of power where he is able to do things like taking away these poor people's house and possessions and, quote-unquote, leveling the playing field and just, you know, uh, pretty much doing these things almost more out of spite than anything else it feels like. Well, and the Communist Party needed bureaucrats. They needed pencil pushers. They needed people who would sit behind a typewriter and do all the paperwork for the other people who were taking your land, taking your crops, taking whatever you had. They needed people to write the documentation to make it legal, and that's exactly what his character is doing throughout the film. And it works because, like you said, he's, he goes from a mild-mannered organist to, I would say, a mildly evil pencil pusher. 
to uh, sort of emphasize um, uh, the point, we have this really, uh, really well worked out, well staged image of uh, these two people left with uh, only the things that have not been taken from them. Uh, and it all fits into the back of uh, this cart. And it's interesting how this house will play such a central role as we go through here and who owns the house now or who's allowed to be in the house and that it even goes to one of the original friends, but then he's pretty much kicked out of it as well. Yeah. Well, and it's haunted, you know, that's another thing about the the house within, within the unfolding of the story, it ends up in a way kind of, uh, you know, haunted. The thing about the Nazis is they were never doing anything with friendliness in their heart. And the problem with communism is it's like it's your friends. And that's the thing that's really horrifying about communism and this movie in general, is that the communists came to you with a smile and a handshake, saying, this is good for everyone. This is great for me and you. But it was never about me and you. It was about me, and it was less about you. Communism's great on paper, but human beings introduced into the mix, as seen in this film, show us that communism does not work in reality. Well, it's interesting, because I I do think that the movies uh, take um, throughout, even even as it gets... um, you know, more tragic and more scathing towards the system is, is always quite humanist. It's, it's a very humane film. Um, and it, it's this kind of, uh, the, you know, the way that the communism ends up working out is a, is a, a slide, uh, into villainy from good intentions. And, uh, and I, I think that that plays out in ways that are really interesting and that, you know, fit the, that opening that I'm making an argument for again, uh, uh, with the, the representing, um, the, the communist as an allegory of children with guns. I love his excitement over a, a proper toilet. I love how many redheaded women there are in this movie. It just seems to add another splash of color to it. I mean, the Merry Widow with her red hair, this woman here with her red hair. It just seems to kick up the color a little bit. And I do notice that the color has seemed to drain a little bit from this scene. And I think as we go through this movie, we're going to start to see less and less color. I don't know what his thing is with all the money on the toilet. I mean, is he just enjoying everything all at once? He's got to have those lamps in his house. The lamp. Yeah, this lamp is terrific. And I like how these characters all come and say, hey, by the way, just give it a day or two. They're going to come take everything from you. And it's like, it's like, you know, defiance in the face of the oncoming, you know, tsunami. It's like, it's coming. Ah, no, it's not. No, no, no. You don't understand. Life as we know it has changed. You just don't get it yet. Yeah. The guy's just like, yeah, they want to turn my butcher shop into a co-op. They want to turn your tailor shop into the same thing. So they're getting their warnings, but they're just not going to heed them because, you know, 
Of course, their friend would never do anything bad to them. I love this. I love the staging of this scene and the the way that um, all this dialogue uh, is is captured uh, essentially in in this one long roving take uh, around them. It's um, you know really really beautifully blocked and uh, helps actually to follow the dialogue and who's speaking there. It's as soon as the we get a knock at the door again. Same house. <laughs> Hasn't even been a month, but he's set up now with his tailor shop, and then immediately these guys want to take it. The one guy who is physically heavier, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he has been in so many things, and he almost always played an evil person. So as soon as I see him show up in anything, I'm just like, okay. Things are going to get serious now. That's the photographer, right? I think you're right. Yeah. Ilya, Ilya Prasha. Yeah. He's his, it, the turn of his character at the end of the film is absolutely one of my favorite comeuppances in the entire film. It is poetic in its justice to the nth degree. And he, I mean, you'll see in this scene, he, you know, he gets what he deserves for the way he treats his supposed quote unquote friends. This guy here is who I'm talking yep. about. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the motion that he makes with his hand is just so... All of a sudden, you see your friend's true colors, and when money and property are involved. It's like just yesterday, I saw him uh, basically uh, torturing Oceanus um, uh, in uh, Journey from Paradise, so, or Transport from Paradise. So it's just like anytime, like I said, every, anytime I see him show up, I just know that there's going to be bad things happening. Well, he has that look to him. He has the look in the eyes. It's the eyes. It's those piercing blue eyes. This is such a, a great cast. No honest earnings. And then talking about the things that he had hidden for Jewish people that were sent away to the camps and accusing him of that. And I'm not sure if he actually did that or not, or how much he might have made off of that if he did. Yep, there you go, Chris. There's that hand movement. Well, I mean, even if he did do what they said, unfortunately, the reality of the situation that they were put in is a depressing one at that. And what do you do with the with the belongings of the of the dead? Unfortunately, you know, the time there's a time and a place, but this shot, uh, the 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 rack focus here is just spectacular. Um, uh, and, and relates to something that I'll probably go on about again later, but th this, this movie uses uh, telephoto lenses so beautifully. Yeah, no, it is absolutely gorgeous. I love the way that this is shot.
Depends on how much vitamin E I can get my hands on. Or beer, I suppose. This guy loves his beer. Oh, the way that he's drinking it there is perfect. That's, uh, that is, that's the stance of drinking morning beer. You do get the sense, though, that his character is the most haunted of all of them. And obviously it plays into it much later, but he's clearly trying to do everything in his power to not be alone, for it to not be quiet, for him to not be in a state of mind that would allow him to have to think about things that have happened in the past. Even though he acts like the most jovial of the bunch. This scene with these guys and their sides, I mean, this is like like an Andrew Wyeth painting come to life, you know? I mean, especially something like this, or when we see them all working in tandem later on, it's just, oh, so wonderful. But just these fields that go on forever. It's not so much that it's about this kind of farm work uh, throughout, but every time we see it, it is it is really it's really distinctive how uh, you know how it shows us this this labor. There's such a a feeling of reality to uh, to what's going on with the way that the the work is depicted and photographed. It's beautiful. You can tell these gentlemen are not actors. <laughs> That's my point here. It's like these, these guys are not are incredible. Actors. Oh yeah, yeah. This is the shot I'm talking about. This is just terrific. Well, and and this is this is one of uh, one of the many shots throughout the film that uh, that uses uh, uses a telephoto lens to kind of stack up space to get these painterly effects. You know, it like flattens a little bit in order to, um, you know, make the people pop out against the landscape more and uh, create these kinds of fields of color and texture. I love how they're just, what, three, four years away from where they were and talking about how, remember how we blew up the mine? This is almost like one of those John Woo flashbacks where it's like, you know, oh, yeah, we just saw that. We just saw that 20 minutes ago, but it's already such different times. And now here he is with his very pregnant bride-to-be. I was always curious about that shot in the beginning with Osenas when he's playing the organ and we see the priest and the way that the priest is kind of looking around, and I don't know if we see that priest again or not. Isn't the priest the one that gets arrested? It would make sense if he was. Because they arrest the priest and then they want to let him go. I was just assuming that's the same character. It could be. I just always found it interesting that he looks like he's up to something at the beginning in the way that Osinus is looking at him as he's playing the organ. It is remarkable how opulent this church is, that uh, the communists, are they they going to leave this alone or are they going to start to uh, take some things away from that? The relationship between the church and communism was always such a, let's say, uneasy relationship. Tenuous at best. 
Well, it's interesting because the, the church ends up uh, in, in both this and, you know, like when we watch the, the joke, um, uh, this kind of occupied space where the where the church gets repurposed for a kind of communist religious rhetoric, like with the hymn that they're singing at the beginning of, of this particular film or the way that the, the, the that those those kind of um, christening rituals uh, are, are used in the joke. I'm so glad you you brought that up because that was exactly where my mind went to was the way that they made it into the be rechristened into the party kind of a thing. Because, yeah, I can't think of too many other Czech films right off the top of my head where we have such prominent church scenes. Yeah, well, and this is, of course, really prominent because it begins in the in the church. Uh, you know, the very first scene, even before the kids uh, and their guns, um, is uh, is the repurposed uh, church. The joke was not set in uh, Bohemia. It was set in... Uh, Morovia, I believe, and I think that this was also set in Morovia as well. I wonder if there was more of a church influence there. Quite possible. I mean, Kadera's anal- analysis in in the the book of the joke is very much that um, uh, that that communism moves into the, the, the sort of folkways and in a way needs the church, uh, in order to, um, you know, function for people in, in place of religion. So I, I think we see a similar kind of analysis here. I just love the self-righteousness of Oceanus's character that they know what's best for everyone. I mean, that was the, what, that's one of the tenets of communism, is we know we know what's best for everyone and Christianity. Well, you know, I wasn't going to go that far, but sure. But you know, that's the idea here: is that we know what's best for everyone, and they don't know anything. We we are the ones who know everything, and they know nothing. And then his wife is quick to point out that the kids will want to change it, and of course they will. Which makes it kind of odd that this character of Bertin is so in with the rest of them. He's clearly the youngest of the entire group. Yeah, he's definitely the youngest, but... He doesn't necessarily feel out of place to me. Right. It feels like they range throughout quite a few ages. And then this becomes one of the first really tragic moments of this film. This whole switcheroo that they do unknowingly, and that Oceanus was going to be put down at this point, and then they mistakenly put down Burton instead. In any other film, this could be funny. I like how they reference the stag and a man again, because they talk about that at the beginning of the film with the two kids. Yeah, we want to get a man or a stag. Yeah, and and now they mention it again. The way that they switch to this 
shooting method here. Then we're going to get a few more times. I think anytime anybody dies, it's really effective. I, I, you know, one of the things that I really, uh, really admire in this film is that while it's not as extreme as in its strangeness as the Czech New Wave, the other Czech New Wave films that I've seen, uh, you know, certainly Daisies is is just you know off the chain, or you know, uh, Valerie in her Week of Wonders. Uh, but even even the joke is more extreme with the the way that it it skips about in time uh, than than this movie is. Uh, nevertheless, there, there are these, um, you know, shifts in the film's language, uh, that are, that are really beautiful and I, I think quite distinctive and different from a lot of other, uh, national traditions of the time. Yeah, they're not obsequious. You know, they, they, sometimes they draw attention to themselves, but it's never like, oh, God, that was totally the wrong thing to do. Or why are you, why are you doing these jump cuts? Or why are you doing these weird match edits or something? But with everything here, it's just like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense and really, you know, makes you feel things closer. Well, it's this film of really great intimacy, and it uses different tools in order to achieve it. You know, um, the the sort of intimacy with the with the characters' uh, emotions and physical states. You know, for instance, when 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 dying uh, in both this scene and others that we're going to get to later in the film, uh, there's there's a a way in which the conventions of the storytelling. Um, uh, will will change up in distinct moments to uh, to bring us kind of closer, you know, kind of like that shift to the handheld that spins around with them as they're dancing. And in one in 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 the course of you know one shot, we were really sold on that entire romance, which has been key leading up to this moment that we just had uh, where he died, which is echoed in the way that the camera was spinning around him as he died. Yes. That was the priest, though, to answer your question from before. Thank you, yeah. The priest and the butcher being taken out. And then Osanus realizes that he's not too safe either. I seem to remember, I want to say it was in... Oh, it was either in the Fifth Horseman is Fear or the Cremator, where there were a lot of um, butterflies under glass, and that seems to come up. And we we see that in that last shot, and then Osanus we see in his room a few more times. These butterflies are are under glass. It, it comes up in Daisies as well. Uh, when I saw that here, because I, I watched Daisies just a few weeks ago again. Um, uh, by by chance, uh, but when it came up here, I was like, "Oh, maybe maybe there's a a bit of a thing with lepidoptery in uh, Czech uh, culture." The way the camera hangs on the the butterflies seems uh, weighted with some symbolism, uh, though I'm not 
I'm not quite sure that I totally get what it is, but um, I'm not a big symbolism guy, so uh, I, I kind of don't mind, you know, when uh, when I'm confronted with something like that that I don't I don't fully get. Uh, it's um, I'm, I'm sort of all right with it personally. I think the sequence is very telling that Asenas sneaks out of the church afterwards, and then the crowd parts for Frantacek as he's coming through, and he's leading this crowd as we go along, and that he, to your point from earlier, Chris, this is really where he starts to become the focal point of the movie. You know, if there is a main character, it's going to be Frantacek, and it's going to be for moments like this. Well, and the other thing that's that's immensely tragic is the fact that the communist brethren of the character that was just murdered pretend they just didn't even show up they're just they're just sitting in their offices because again it's just one other life off a line item and it doesn't matter and that's the way that everyone is treated in this film as the film goes on i mean osinus was there but i mean that that doesn't matter but the rest of them weren't i mean he's he happens to be there because he weaseled his way out as quickly as possible but the rest of them were just in the office working because you know, what does it matter? Well, it's part of this tragedy, too, of, uh, you know, the rhetoric being that the, that the communists are of the people, but how quickly they end up separating from the people. And uh, that a few of them, uh, as, as we see here, you know, framed in the window, just a couple of them uh, opposed to this larger group of the people in this community. I very much like the way that the camera is here, that it is definitely not from their point of view, that it is from a different point of view. And God, talk about, uh, you know, sympathetic weather here. But we are, are not taking their POV as we are looking down at this crowd, that it is off center. Right. Yeah. Again, it's like a third. It's you know, like with the uh, the the uh, voiceover narration. It's a third person narration that is taking its own point of view within the shot and reverse logic, rather than like direct character POV. Even from the ground up, looking at the guys in the windows, it is not from Frontichek's POV. That is again from that kind of off center POV. Yeah, now you've got me curious about uh, lepidoptery in these films. Or was it Valerie in her Week of Wonders? Now I've got to go back. Well, luckily that's one of the things is that I'd never mind rewatching any of these films at the drop of a hat. Yeah, that's one thing. I'll, I'm, I'll just say for my own part, uh, coming to uh, check new wave films uh, kind of late, uh, there's a part of me kicking myself over the last few years as I've been watching these movies going, why the hell did it take me this long? Where have these films been all my life that I couldn't get around to watching them? Um, uh, it, you know, of the of the new waves, uh, my my exposure so far is I, I I prefer the Czech new wave to others from the period. For me, it feels like it lasted longer than some of the other periods, and then it, yeah, it was just so rich in so many 
great filmmakers and you had both the ones that were from the FAMO school and then the ones that were uh, before it. And the, I think some of the FAMO filmmakers kind of kicked some of the older filmmakers into gear and they would make some of the most creative films that were out there. But luckily now we live in kind of a golden age where you can see these movies with subtitles. You can see them restored, see beautiful prints of them. I mean, the first time I saw Daisy's was an old beat-up VHS bootleg of it. So didn't really get the full effect that way, but I still knew that it was something glorious. Well, this is a really beautiful restoration, too, because um, as we talked about before, uh, you know, for preparing for this, uh, we've, we've now seen at least two different transfers of, uh, of this, this movie. Uh, and the previous one we looked at, I was very impressed with. Uh, but but this, um, this particular file uh, is, is from the restoration. And it's uh, much more beautiful than I expected. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing the, the quality uh, that's being brought out um, in, in these digital releases now. Yeah, I, I would be hard-pressed to say that I have even seen a scratch on this print. That was such a nice match cut, because it almost looks like it's coming from the other side. I like how his wife sees no issue with this uh, and anything that's going on because it's all about being an opportunist. And while we talked about O'Shannis being the main villain of the film, I would go out on a limb and say this character might actually supplant him once his character leaves. The photographer, because he he is a much more dastardly character. Yeah, and a much more, I would say, imposing as well. Well, definitely by the sequel, all is forgiven with Hosannas, so. Well, the sequel, prequel, autobiographical film is its own, it's its own thing in a weird, strange, kind of wonderful way. It It doesn't seem like it has anything to do with this movie, and then all of a sudden it does. You start off in New York with a guy being tied up naked in Central Park, and then next thing you know, you're back in this same village going, okay, here's some of these same characters. Here's the daughter of the Merry Widow and uh, uh, Burton. Okay, how did this happen? Well, now now we have a repetition of uh, all the possessions one has left in the cart. Um, a change up, and we get our Greek chorus of uh, onlookers. Plus, we had the um, repetition of the scene at the bar, but it's much more sedate this time. I would say, though, that it's worth checking out Return to Paradise Lost because it does give some characters some semblance of closure. Not that it's needed. No, it was it was an interesting take to see something that was done 30 years, 31 years after and to see where 
Yasni was and the, the he you know, th- th- to see the character who really I think was a stand-in for him who was talking about going to Germany was talking about going to America and that he missed Czechoslovakia so much when he was in Germany but once he moved to America he didn't miss it as much and so that whole mix of because I think there are, are characters in there that speak German that speak Czech and that speak English and it's always interesting to see when the subtitles come up <laughs> because I was, I, as I was watching it again I was just like okay um, you know they they would be speaking Czech and then all of a sudden switch into English and uh, it would always take me by surprise. Though I do agree, the other day when we talked, Chris, your assessment as far as the unnecessary love plot that goes on in Return to Paradise Lost, it's like that American actor, I really could have done without him. Well, I mean, it does make sense considering how it's a character, you know, unborn character from this film, but still, you know. They had to address it, I guess. I think that's her, actually, right there. Yeah, that's this now-born, previously unborn character, yeah. I was very curious about the unofficial remake-slash-sequel of this film. Um, What was that called? Oh, Moravian Land, where I was trying my best to watch it, and... Without subtitles, it was really difficult, but it was interesting that so many of the same actors were in it. And from what I understand, it was kind of a do-over to say, hey, uh, collectivism isn't that bad, and, you know, maybe Frontichek isn't uh, the hero. <laughs> but I, like I said, I couldn't sit down and watch it all the way through without subtitles. It just... Was it? There was too much dialogue for me to be able to keep up with it. We must change our tune because the communist government won't let it come out otherwise. I mean, again, this film is not heavy-handed with its criticism of communism. Like you said, Spencer, it does it in a way that feels real, and it's not a condemnation of communism, not in like a overt way, but it is very clearly taking a you know, non-communist stance throughout the film. I visited uh, Czech Republic a couple of years ago, and um, there's almost a, there's, there's practically a tourist industry around disliking communism uh, that, that you can find there. You find tours that are, that are like, oh, here are all the sites where horrible things were done to people. Uh, and they're very, you know, they're very upfront about that kind of, Kind of thing, but on the other hand, um, there isn't, uh, you know, at least what I observed uh, visiting, there there is not a reflexive uh, kind of embrace of uh, Western capitalism either. There's a great deal of skepticism of, about all these systems. Well, you could be like when I visited Ukraine, another Eastern European country, where there were still statues of Stalin and Lenin. Yes, yeah. Uh, this scene with the the Con- geese confusing is really in- times. Confusing times. Yeah, very confusing places. The scene with the geese uh, that we just saw, by the way, I'm, I'm going to point out uh, is um, a bit of foreshadowing uh, for an important moment uh, for that character later.
Yes, yeah. Now we're now we're coming up on the haunting. Is this character the most tragic character in the film? I would go out on a limb and say that he is. He's he's had a, a rough, rough time of it. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe, you know, in terms of tragedy, we see someone who is, uh, you know, so... Um, uh, Who's, who's been so affected by uh, what what happened with uh, with the Germans taking over, and now he's also being affected by the communists taking over, uh, and you know both in tragic ways that uh, you know from one to the next. Yeah, because I know the Mary Widow lost her husband during the war, but it's at least she finds love after that and then subsequently loses it. But with this character, yeah, he's trying to drown out the memories. Well, and, and his wife stands in for so many other people as well. You know, there's, uh, there's, there's this distinct sense, um, uh, in the, in, in the way that she's presented here and uh, uh, in, it, visually in that scene and also that we know um, that, that uh, she was taken away uh, to a concentration camp, um, that, that we get this weight of, of genocide that's uh, on this guy. Well, and the thing that's really... And survivor's guilt. Well, and it's really impactful that they don't mention she's taken away to the concentration camp. She's taken away to the crematorium. Which is even oh, right. worse. That's, which is even that's right. worse. Well, and that they say that she looked Jewish, that she maybe wasn't even Jewish. Didn't take much to get sent to the crematorium. It's that tacit understanding that she's not going to the camp; she's going to be put to death. It's just, it's just awful. Well, and now, okay, so now we have, we have the, <laughs> I love, I love this woman's face, uh, and the way that she looks at these two as soon as they arrive, you know, that we see the next in the daisy chain for the Merry Widow. This face is also remarkable, and we'll get some dialogue about them in a moment. That's great. I also love that this other crazy woman who's, uh, you know, lifting the skirt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess this is the most comical of the romantic disasters. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, really, really fascinating the moment they, they show up. You know, the first one killed himself on the mic- uh, motorcycle. Mesnik was so great. I mean, the the whole thing with him doing, well, however they're doing it to make his lip stand out like that, just gives him such a comical look to him. But he could do drama as well as comedy, but he just always was so good with the comic roles. 
He was uh, in so many older older Tlipsky comedies. He was the main character in Happy End, which is probably one of my favorite Lipsky movies. But he would show up in just so many things. You know, I mentioned tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea. He's one of the three main. Um, you can't really call him protagonist. Three main uh, Nazi sympathizers in that movie. Um, and he is just terrific. Anytime he shows up in anything, it's just going to make things better. And, and we have here a repetition of uh, one of her suitors dancing with her. And it's shot very, very differently from the one before. And is is much more of uh, the, the formal uh, kind of telephoto style on the, the two of them. Um, and I think that that, uh, that that nicely represents a difference in the emotional relationship between the two versus uh, the Merry Widow and Burton. When I watched this movie the first time, I thought that maybe his wife actually hadn't been killed and that this was her just showing up. And I was like, oh, my God, what the hell's going on? Well, and I think that's entirely intentional. Uh, I had I had the same I had the same kind of thought, and you know, in the way that this this goes, um, giving him a type in a way uh, is uh, is part of a compounding of the tragedy. This is one of the few respites, though, in the movie where the film kind of slows down for a minute. And they're just, you're kind of going back to before all of the kind of communist takeover where you see the characters just enjoying life. And if you've been watching this film this whole time, you know that them enjoying life is just a a momentary time before something else bad happens once again. Something tragic happens and, you know, this this upcoming thing is more self-inflicted, but it's just... This is a di- thoroughly dour and at times depressing film, unfortunately, but not in a negative way. No, I, I, I mean, it, it is, but I, I, I find it, uh, you know, oddly life affirming, um, you know, in, in the uh, in the way that the the characters are in a terrible situation, but they, ha- they are presented each with their own um, integrity. Uh, come back soon. Oh. Yeah. I mean, had this been in less deft hands, it could have turned into almost an absurdist (laughs) comedy of just horrible things happening to each of these characters. But thank God there's these moments of respite in between them. Otherwise, it would just be too much. Well, and that that absurdist edge uh, in there is it, it remains just enough to keep it from turning into uh, kind of treacly uh, melodrama, uh, you know, sort of weepy kind of stuff. Um, there's there's a really wonderful balance of tone throughout. I find it very interesting that that's his thing is to steal clocks. That he's got so many clocks in his house and it just seems to speak even again to this passing of time okay so what is why does he do this i i, I was I've gonna really ask the same thing 
story. I'm glad you talks. asked it. And, and there's a, there's a part of, you know, I actually just go with it because people are, you know, crazy. And this guy's clearly a kind of a fuck up. Uh, but um, I, I kept looking for some some notion of like, is is he trying out a, a, a crazy athlete's foot treatment here that goes horribly awry? What's happening? Uh, it, it's 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 really quite a bizarre episode. Was he trying to wound himself so he wouldn't have to go to prison? That's what I think, yeah. But as far as him going in and getting all this filth all over so that he gets an infection, it just seems like he's going to real extremes. To the extreme that one should not go when dousing one's foot in acid and then dunking it in horse excrement. Because that's like where the horses are, are being kept, or in an area where they would be kept. Yeah, and then we just have to assume that there's another big time jump that's going to happen here between uh, him doing that and then his untimely demise. I feel like they show the flowers to insinuate that time jump. I think even between this and then when he finally passes. I think he was just holding his lip like that. (laughs) I thought maybe there was, it looks like there's a tooth or something going on in there to pop it out. But if he could do that naturally, that'd be quite a talent. That would be a talent. This character's just gotten more and more pitiful as the film has gone on. You know, dousing one's foot, now it's bandaged. So we have to then assume that he didn't go to jail? Yeah, I'm thinking that injury prevented him from going to jail. Okay, that's the way I interpreted it as well. So he ends up not going to jail, but... Yeah. But... Well, it, it's, such, it's such a specific thing, I guess, that, that like, uh, yeah, I, I had trouble connecting it with, uh, with the desire not to go to jail. <laughs> so acid on your foot? That's really... What are you, okay, go for it, dude. It's the nuclear option to prevent oneself from going to jail. I mean, so much so that this, again, another time jump, clearly. But yeah, to your point earlier, Spencer, there's the, uh, those feathers coming back. And we're getting, you know, we, we started to get, uh, the shift into, uh, you know, his, POV perspective with some of those shots of the flowers that were going in and out of focus as he was walking along. And now, now he's really in a daze. I want to know how they got, I mean, I'm sure it's just some fan or whatever, but this is really magic. Uh, the way that all these, uh, these feathers are swirling in the air, uh, as he's, uh, losing it. And then the camera effect is even more extreme now than it was when, uh, Burton died. But this is a gutting scene. Completely gutting. I mean, the character, you know, he's a thief, but... He also brought joy to the film. Yeah, 
Yeah. Vladimir Mezhnik is is a great actor, and he he's one of the best parts of the film, and his character just getting covered in in goose feathers after burning his own foot with acid is is no way to go. I don't think that we're uh, not supposed to think about snowfall here with all these feathers. Yeah, well, and that that speaks to some images at the end, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. And then the whole change of the seasons that we have with all of these different jumps, too. Right. I mean, the first season that they show with the communists is the wintertime, you know, spring of of 48. So it's, uh, yeah, it just keeps piling on the imagery. But again, not not heavy handed. I love this funeral, by the way, uh, and the, the the way that this eulogy kind of goes. You know, they have to add into it. It's it's essential not to completely cover up that he's a thief. But if there's a town thief, wouldn't everyone know if something disappeared that one person has taken it? Yeah, I mean, just using a logical way of looking at it, right? Just imagine how many crimes you could get away with by pinning them on Joe the Lip. Exactly. Well, and, and, but again, this is the this is the kind of like, you know, humanism of the, the presentation of, of this community. All these people showed up for the town thief. So he's not all bad. Yeah. Kind of beautiful. so few people in the church now. There's your favorite again. I forget how many times she's in this. <laughs> oh, she's all over this movie. I I adore her. Well, the first time you don't the first time you just play it off as just a character and then the fifth or sixth time it's you notice she has an arc. <laughs> This lady behind him is uh, uh, over his uh, shoulder is really wonderful too, um, and I, I I love this uh, confession scene that's about to come up. I, I I love I love how it's shot and edited and how how they take their time with this. This is a this great uh, kind of character performance moment. This, this sort of gag of we're going to go through all the Ten Commandments is um, uh, really, really nice, um, you know, lightly comic uh, structure for the scene. Which is really needed. And it's a unique way of shooting a confession scene. Yeah. Because most of the time, especially when it's a, it's a film that features the Catholic faith, I mean, I'm assuming I'm going to make an assumption that this is orthodoxy knowing it's Eastern Europe, but in the Catholic, you know, Catholic faith, you do it in a, in, in a, in anonymity. And here there's no anonymity. He knows exactly who it is because he's sitting out in the open. Yeah. We definitely needed that levity after having seen Joe the lip die. Are these the same churches? 
Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if this is the same church as at the beginning, is it? It seems much more austere than the church that we saw Oceanus uh, play uh, his organ in. Which in and of itself could be some kind of commentary. Because, I mean, again, the beginning, the gentleman is wearing the the Catholic... Collar. Yes. He's wearing the Catholic collar, and this gentleman is as well, but he's also wearing the cardinal hat. I mean, that's that's the, the, the cardinal, the hat for the cardinals as well. But I, I guess it must be the same one. This gentleman stepped in in, in the place of the other character. So the priest probably wasn't let go then. Uh, if I had a nickel for every time I had somebody tell me, I see you are a great sinner. Well, and I think connecting the church and communism comes together nicely here. Uh, you know, this, uh, this idea of the doubtful faith in God uh, for one of the characters. We have sort of doubtful faith in communism for, for the characters as well in the larger plot. It's a nice punchline to the scene. (laughs) And then here's another echo. We had this guy painting a bull at the beginning, and then this is kind of a capturing a moment in time where he's painting the remaining friends plus the rest of the folks here at the bar. Yet another respite before a tragic event. Well, and and also another, uh, we're about to see a a really nice um, kind of expressive device here used. And uh, yeah, this anti-realistic device of having everyone remain perfectly still and not... uh, you know, not uh, printing still frames of them, but simply having the actors hold still uh, is, uh, is this, this really nice change up out of, you know, the, the general mode of uh, realism storytelling. Though definitely that painting is anything but realistic. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I love his technique. The painter's technique is great. How he gets the hair. And now everybody's back in motion. Yeah, watching this movie really makes me yearn for company and being amongst good friends and food. Something you just can't do these days. Oh, it's not good to ask somebody to tell your fortune when you're about five (laughs) minutes from death. (laughs) St. Francis was a martyr as well. Yeah, that's comforting. That's a comforting Uh thought here. Yeah. 
She's pretty good. That's dead on. <laughs> and if if you hold your hand out to someone and they refuse to tell you your fortune, yeah, things aren't good. Less ne- less needs to be said than yeah, just yeah. <laughs> You're in for it, pal. Hey, he tells his own fortune, so there you go. What does it matter? It is interesting that they <laughs> are mixing the, uh, you know, we've been talking about the Catholicism, and now we have this kind of uh, Romani uh, fortune telling. Yeah. 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 Well, the way that those things, you know, always, uh, you know, flow together. Oh, I love I love this bit with the little dog curling up with him. So good. How do you get that? It's just the dog did it and keep the camera rolling. I think Amazing. it's just pure luck, yeah. And that painting is uh is it, it turns out to be pretty terrific. Yeah, I do like it, yeah. Uh, the Merry Widow is always, uh, with, with the exception of, of that one pink dress that comes up every so often, she's always in the, these like pumpkin and mustard colors that are really, really distinctive and make her, you know, pop out uh, throughout the film. And there's there's just something great about the way that the, the an orange dress like that looks perfect with her with her hair. There's an orange cardigan earlier in the film that uh, um, I, I'm just in love with. Was I right that they were putting horns on Zasenek's head in the... Yes. Okay, that's kind of also symbolic with the way that it goes out. Yeah, and I think it makes sense of this painting being on paper, you know, rather than directly onto the wall. Kind of reminds me, you were talking about the joke earlier, it reminds me of the guy who uh, is doing all the dirty pictures, but yes. then turns them into a communist metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, you know there's a fine tradition of that in pornography. <laughs> oh, that skull, skull that right got. there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is what this is like my favorite shot in the movie. Uh, the way that it tilts down and there's just this hand coming in from the side. You know the flatness of the of the the tableau and then this this disembodied hand in that first shot as the guy is playing uh before we we pop out to the wide it's also very reminiscent of the beginning of the film where they're all sitting underneath under the tree and now there's many few less people <laughs> left to enjoy the reveries as they sit underneath a tree and you know wait for the dawn to come oh no this goat the, the the weird this this like you know goat witness uh for the scene which in a lot of cultures the goat being the symbol for the devil as well yeah oh this is so awful So for, for reference, don't just walk up to a loose bull and ask who let you out. <laughs> oh, 
Also, I love what the camera does, where it just starts zooming in and yeah. out rapidly. Yeah, with this like step framed uh, emotion technique. Yeah, they've they've done that on each of the deaths where the frame rate slows down significantly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the quickest of the deaths, thank goodness, but... Yeah. And well, now we get this Pieta. You're totally right, it is. He uses nature so wonderfully in this. So nature doesn't seem to care. Everything goes on. And then the lives yeah. of the people are just ever-changing. And I, w- I would say that this is like the... I mean, I know that the film is two-thirds over, but this is almost the second half of the film. Right. Because now it is Frantichek and Frantichek only for the rest of the film. Because, you know, the the other major characters uh, have died or, or, you know, in one case, left town. You know, the, the, most of the other major characters are, 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 are dead now. Yeah, it's only Frantichek and Osanis left. We might see the Merry Widow some more, but yeah, that, that's it. And the tailor, but the tailor was kind of off to the side as a character. Yes. But you might you might have spotted her. She's in this scene again, our favorite uh resting skeptical face lady. She's always there. And you're right, Chris, there's a photographer hanging out as well. Well, and all the communists are slowly being replaced. They're being replaced by the the town's communists are being replaced by communists from outside of the town, like the gentleman like the gentleman standing up. I think they had a little bit more of a tolerance when it was their, their, you know, their countrymen, and now it's the, you know, now it's the actual like party as a whole coming in. I do like how Frantichek paints a target on his own back, though. Yeah. Because he didn't have to. That shot of the communist just looks like a Renaissance painting. It really does. <laughs> Villains leaning in together. Well, it's, it, it's interesting too that uh, you know this. This, of course, you know got uh, got him, him banned. But uh, it, he mentions that um, it was a project he worked on for a long time, uh, and that he only felt like it was possible to get it made, and his friends felt that it was possible to get it made after Stalin died. So. This is it, it, it's interesting the gestation period for for this film. You know the the stories that uh, the director wants to tell um, uh, about uh, about these people. It goes on for for some time, but then even after the death of Stalin, it's it remains too dangerous a film to make. Yeah, well, at least he didn't get killed for making it. Right. Small favors. Yeah, the difference the difference between getting killed for it and uh getting, you know, banished from the country for it. And that they even gave him 4 days to make up his mind whether he was going to renounce it as uh, you know, being his worst work. 
končím aj dnes. And I mentioned earlier, as far as like the ear and some of the other films that were banned, I mean, they were literally taken out of the historical records. But it was interesting because they they would be taken out of the historical records, you know, it, where they could be affected. Um, but a lot of times the titles were struck, but then you would still be able to look up things by actor or composer and you would still run across those titles. So it was just this weird kind of backwards way of trying to change history. Well, that's a, uh... Uh, that that's rather eternal, I guess. <laughs> uh, this this scene, uh, you know, just as as like kind of allegory, is pretty interesting in the way that it begins with a montage of all the old people's faces, and then he meets up with the the older woman, and then he goes to the children, and then finally we get characters that are his age. There's you know, sort of looping back through these thoughts about you know how how children are seen in the film and how this chorus of older people and like their perspective on the longer history plays into this. And uh, I, I don't think that there's any kind of huge meaning to it, but I do think it's a very deliberate choice uh, to, um, uh, to give that kind of order. I like how the voiceover narrator was kind of shaming the other people. Yeah, they're tacitly complicit. Yeah. I do love all these hard-ass old farmers that just refuse, absolutely refuse to play ball. And the looks on their faces... Oh, these faces. That so you have these genuine people with these real terrific faces. And how more and more desperate the communists continue to get. Because they yeah. don't have they have no they have absolutely no power when it comes to negotiation. Well, I love I love the use of this this room and uh, the the way that um, it has uh, kind of two different color schemes within it uh, over the course of the scene. That uh, you know, one side um, uh, <laughs> is is that light blue, and then the other side of the room is this this like you know rich brick red that becomes you know a kind of color field behind the heads of of these these men who are refusing to sign. Um, and now ha- being forced to. Oh, and I love all these uh, dirty fingernails. I love this montage of dirty fingernails here. And uh, the guy's missing a, a joint on his finger. Really, really beautiful and sad and telling. Uh, just further lends the idea that these are not actors. These are real working people. I did like how Frantacek made the uh, official help mow the field because he couldn't leave it up to his uh, old and sick father. Yeah, I, I liked I liked that quite quite a bit, and I liked that the official was pretty obviously, even though it's a very brief 
that, you know, in, not very capable of doing the job. He's pretty bad at it instantly. We've got that white horse again that we saw in the last winter scene, which usually is not a good symbol when you see a white horse in movies. <laughs> no. The last winter scene that took place seven years before all of this. Right. Just about an hour earlier in the film. So much has happened. And we're about to get some, some more amazing animal action. I love this dog. This is, like, one of the most amazing movie dogs I've seen ever. I love the scene that he has with Franticek coming up here. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of all those little videos that we see of somebody coming home from the war being reunited with their dog. Is it beggars the question, where were they keeping him? And how far away, and how poorly were the communists running their jail? Oh, so good. Dog. It's like the dog's keeping him alive to get him to go forward. It's incredible. He's going to need that hat back eventually. He is, yeah. That dog is so happy. Oh my god, best movie dog. Because he's been gone for what? In the film, it's two years, right? Look who's home. Yeah, this dog is better than Lassie, I think. Yeah. Well, the dog, I mean, what's so beautiful to me about the, uh, oh man, that's very rough. Uh, what's so beautiful to me about the, the dogs in this is that they are, they're not like, uh, you know, you mentioned Lassie, they're not like that kind of overly trained, you know, sort of dog. Uh, there's, they're hitting their marks, but there's chaos to what they're doing as well. So hard to capture. Am I right in thinking that this might be the house that they confiscated? It totally is. Okay. Yeah. When I saw the doorway that the one farmer was trying to get out of, it looked like the same ornate doorway that I saw before. I like how they're finally judging themselves Mm -hmm. for stealing because they don't have enough. And the belief... The belief by this character that he's going to be given a chance. When he gave no other characters a chance. Yeah. I know it's easy for me to say, but we're going to have a scene coming up here pretty soon where we have people wearing these animal masks. And of course, it brings to mind for me uh, Animal Farm, but it's almost like the people are becoming animals rather than the animals becoming people like they did in Animal Farm. 
Uh, and those animal masks are kind of all-time great animal masks in movie. It's really they're they're great. I love I love how they're made and painted and designed. They're beautiful. We'll get to those soon. You write this kind of blood red wall behind him, and just starts to dwarf him. Yeah, the attention throughout this movie, it, it's, um, it's very subtle, but the attention to design, you know, through, um, through costumes and very simple choices in the locations is, uh, it, it is very, very precise. It's actually a very designed movie, but, you know, un, unlike a lot of des- very designed movies, it doesn't, it, it's not in your face about it and it doesn't feel like it's always making that kind of point. It, it sort of catches you off guard. And like I was saying earlier, as far as the colors and things go, I mean, look how muted something like this is compared to those opening scenes that we had. I mean, yes, yes, they were taking place outside, but I think even an inside shot that you would get earlier in the film would be much more colorful and vibrant than this is. When your time comes, I'll remind you of this. That uh, it seems seems like a you know a real principle for how how things have functioned in the party throughout the film and will continue to go. Well, the just lack of human decency and human empathy is just it's astounding. Yeah, from what used to be such a wonderful village where everybody knew each other and cared about each other to this. And there's your rack focuses again, Spencer. Yeah, the telephoto lens stuff in this in this movie is really really remarkable. Um, you know, creates uh, a number of distinct you know beautiful effects. These rack focuses being one of them, but then you know the the, the sort of the stacking of landscape and, and 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 buildings and creating these these very painterly effects. I mean, you mentioned Andrew Wyeth, for instance, like you know the way that these um, these these hills end up being rendered by the lens is really beautiful. So all of these images of the flowers must be in his head compared to the outside world, which is just a snowy landscape. Yeah. Oh, I know. It was Bruegel the Elder is who I was thinking of when we saw the the shot of him coming over the hill. Well, that's an interesting. You point out the, the the flowers there. That's a really interesting trick to pull with the audience because we've gotten those kinds of shots that tell us uh, repeatedly throughout the film that we're jumping forward in time. And this time, the way that it is, he's almost dreaming that he's jumped forward in time, but he's not. He's trapped. I think that's a really really nice sly use of um, the film language that's been established uh, for for this uh, difficult bait and switch there. On the white horse. And a much different landscape, thank goodness. 
and of the spires behind him. And the long lens here sets off, you know, a figure against the landscape, you know, that it, the, the, the shallow depth of field really works. And check seems to be the only one working anymore. Everyone else is just watching and and letting letting the uh, communist government rule their lives, and he just refuses and continues to work because he has to bear the burden for everyone. Well, and to our point about the the, the animal masks a moment earlier, we we have you know comparison here of man to horse. You know, and the man has to go on, uh, you know, because like, because he's can. But that's that's sort of the the idea of uh, you know man versus stag earlier, and then man versus horse here, um, and uh, and then we're, we're going to see the animal masks later. This sort of um, decline uh, towards being animals uh, to maybe not being able to go on. I love this line of men. And how those suits uh, in a line, you know, really, really disrupt, you know, this landscape. All the communists do is just hound everyone constantly and break them down through through will of constant agitation alone. I love these two opposing forces. It feels like the second half, this entire part of the film, is spent in this room. More or less. I mean, there's so much that happens in this room that ends up determining the fate of the rest of the characters in the film. Yeah, and all of these confessions and pieces of paper they have to sign, it's like death by bureaucracy. I find it interesting that he's not in a seated position against them. He's standing against them. Yeah, literally taking a stand against them. That same position where they said, you could have said something, and you didn't. And here we have that... That same echo. Františka drželi na četnické stanici 
až všichni ze strachu před začením podepsali. František nepodepsal. It feels like to me the film wraps up rather quickly. Like there's a lot of setup to get to this really quick downward spiral of the communists and their stranglehold on this town. Well, to your point from earlier, the, that we just have Frantichek being our main character. It's not like we can bounce around to the other ones anymore. So yeah, I totally agree with you. It just does feel like since we pinpointed on him that we are getting closer and closer. And again, it makes sense that the last one left isn't the thief, isn't the artist, isn't the, isn't, you know, isn't anyone else. It's just the farmer. The farmer, the farmer is the yeah. one left. Yeah, it is interesting to play this against uh, Kachnya's the ear, where he was the only person not purged, but that was more a um, mistake or something being overlooked than something done on purpose, and that he eventually right. does get taken away. Yeah, well, that sense of randomness and mistake to, to things, I think, is a really nice essential element um, when depicting a, a sort of political machine. That there, there are still there's it, it, people and things fall through the cracks. Yeah, this looks like a much different church, or at least we're just getting a different angle. I mean, I suppose these pews might be the same ones from earlier. Well, now it's much more full than we've seen it before. And it also, you know, <laughs> there she is again. Uh, we've also chosen angles to uh, emphasize how ornate it is um, and see more of the religious symbolism all at once. And it does a good job showing how out of place this family is against the backdrop of ostensibly an entire town that's turned to communism. lot fewer people following friend to check out than there were before obviously yeah before there was this kind of united group uh exiting and now it's uh, uh much more dispersed i find it funny that they think that one person is going to fix all their problems 
one person is going to right the ship. One man, one farmer is going to fix every problem. The one individualist in the entire town is the only one who can fix everything that has failed the collective group. Well, I, I mean, it's a, I think that's a very common way of thinking, you know. Sadly. Well, and, and also considering within this context uh, where, you know, the collective uh, is the collective is failing the collective, um, then one might look to the individual against the collective. But obviously, um, that's a fraught sort of situation. Yeah, I also wonder what had happened if Yasni had either left after he did the Cassandra cat, which was, uh, or also known as when the cat comes, which was um, such a hit when it first came out. Um, if he had maybe taken up uh, some of the Hollywood offers that seemed to be uh, coming at him a little bit. He managed to maintain some really good relationship relationships over the years. I mean, in the documentary about him where he's talking about working with Robert Redford and being out at Sundance, and it just feels like he managed to, you know, he, he kept working very steadily after he left Czechoslovakia and had some, some uh, good influence in the States. I think he also worked, what, at Columbia as well, I believe. They do a pretty good job of making him look older. They also do a good job of showing that his wife really is the smartest person in the entire town. Yes. Usually the case. This sequence is really stunning. You know, just the, uh, the the way that they look against the snow here at the beginning of the sequence is is gorgeous, and um, you know where it's headed is is going to be. Here we go, that much that much more beautiful. Yeah, those masks are a little truly frightening. They yeah, really I was going to say, that one's particularly good lord in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some culturally insensitive masks in the mix, um, not, not surprisingly. But yeah, these masks are, and the, what they do to the figures is really, uh, it's, it's magical. You know, it's, it's like the masks completely change change the sense of character and of their bodies. We know that they're masks, you know, we see the, the thing revealed, but there's still something that, uh, that takes over in the way that the imagery works here. I do like how there's a Cossack mask, which is great. A Cossack mask with the person holding a bottle of vodka. Yes. Fitting, of course, <laughs> for anyone with any knowledge of the Cossacks. 
Yes. <laughs> and the death mask. Yeah, this is this is terrific. I love I love this. Uh, I love the turn that this takes. That it's um, at once uh, ecstatic and uh, destructive. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Yeah. yeah. See, dude, exactly. you can't you can't dance with your you can't dance with the people from the town anymore. You gave that up. Honestly, we could have done without the next scene and just the idea that they're just wandering yeah. the snowy countryside. Well, as they take off together over the countryside, yeah, they uh, they, they really they, they become something else. They become more than... You know, the people in the masks and become bigger and bigger. Yeah, as I danced off, I kept thinking of the last shot of uh, the Seven Seal. Sorry. I always mix up Max Vancito and Demi Moore. Yeah, in that angel costume, and I think she was written or, or drawn as the angel, or painted as the angel, I should say, on the wall of the bar. And the widow, once again, wearing a shade of orange. And I did notice a goat in a, at least a cow costume. It wasn't a bull, thank goodness. A much different singing scene than earlier. Yeah, sometimes these title cards are almost frightening. It's like uh, almost The Shining. And there's Osanis. We haven't seen him in a long time. I like this whole thing. Trying to get all these different drinks, but now they only have vodka. Well, and time has passed so far that he's not even recognized in his own town anymore.
I like that. How we were following him, now we move to this character. Poetic justice. The photographer is now blind. Yeah, I suppose it's okay that Osanis isn't so bad in the sequel to this. It is nice to see him again after all those years and that he was still acting at that point. So in the other translation of the film, they say it's not the they don't use the word blackguards, they use the word weeds. The weeds stay. Which I think has like a more there's like a bigger impact when I was watching it. Yeah, I'm curious what the translation if there will be doing new subs for this or not. They're really just just hammer home one of the themes of the film. Well, they mentioned blackguards twice now in the film, so it's kind of it, 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 you know, kind of held over. So, no, it makes sense. It goes to that whole, you know, man can rise and fall, trick each other, be horrible to one another, but nature is always still going to be there. Yeah, is that the one guy's wife or the actress that? That's his daughter. That's his daughter. That's his daughter. Yeah, the Frantichek's daughter that was in the the sleigh with him. That's her grown up. She just reminded me of the Jewish wife. Sure, sure. Yeah, to your point earlier, Chris, I I do prefer all my good countrymen to all my compatriots because it's just, I guess, just because we don't use compatriots very much at all. No, countrymen has a nice ring to it. It it flows better. And it also seems to stick a button on it, too, that they're all countrymen together. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, it was a pleasure watching this film with you guys. 
Yeah, this is, I, I mean, again, I didn't know what to expect watching it and, and sitting here having watched it several times now. It is truly a, it's a fantastic film. At times depressing, at times dour, and at times, you know, comedic in a way that it, it uh, kind of treads the line and balances all three very, very deftly. Vyplň se os 